Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and I don't know about you, but I'm still buzzing from Sunday's incredible final at the Northern Ireland Open between Mark Allen and John Higgins. I mean, you know, if you were going to script a snooker tournament conclusion, that's what you would write. You would write, firstly, a great match, a close match that went to a decider. You'd script in a comeback, and of course you'd script in victory for the local man, Mark Allen, who'd never done anything really in that tournament. His home tournament, he put himself under pressure over the years... As he said, it was the only tournament of the season he was trying to win for other people rather than himself. This year he changed uh, changed ploys. He checked into the hotel, treated it as another event. But it's very hard to do that when you're on home soil and you've got your family there and you know what it means to other people. And he won. And uh, what an incredible uh, victory. What an incredible night. Um, in case anyone was sort of um, questioning their love for snooker, I'm sure no one listening to this would do that. But if you were then it reminded you why you love the sport in the first place. And um, what it emphasises well, I think, is that it's a sort of dual thing in snooker. Firstly, you've got the, the, the actual game, which is fascinating and skillful, and there's so many variations to it and so many kind of twists and turns. But on the other side, and this, I think, is one of the main reasons it's such a big deal still on TV, you've got the human side, you've got the stories in the background. I mean, if Higgins had won, it would have been a big deal. Obviously, one of the all-time greats adding to his legacy, you know, into his late 40s. But for Mark Allen to do it, to have his daughter there, it's the callback to Alex Higgins with Lauren, baby Lauren in 1982. Alan, uh, Mark Allen had Harley, his daughter, with him. It's just a fantastic evening. Great atmosphere. Obviously, the people made it, the crowd made it. And that was doubly special because we hadn't had them in the last year. Everything about it was brilliant. And um, what a wonderful occasion it was. And I was very... Uh, proud to play a small role in it, obviously commentating. Um, yeah, just brilliant. And myself and Neil Folds on, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, we picked out our highlights of the Home Nation series. And Mark King's win over Barry Hawkins, we both picked number one. That was the first year in Belfast, 2016, at the Northern Ireland Open. I think now this this goes straight in like a bullet to, in the, to the top five, maybe even number one now. It reminded me actually very much of that King-Hawkins final. Similar sort of emotional human things in the background. And uh, and just a wonderful match, wonderful viewing, um, and you couldn't hear a bad word about it. It was just a fantastic 
night and once again illustrating that snooker as entertainment and a sport and as human drama really really can deliver and the thing is this you know this is not a one-off there'll be more of these i'm sure during the season um featuring different players in different scenarios uh, just really, really good. I thought it was a great week. Obviously, Mark Allen started it with a maximum. That was kind of a sign that, you know, it was going to be a special week for him. The ironic thing about the maximum was we we always talk, I think quite rightly, about his close cue ball control. He was always sort of right behind the next object ball. Of course, he wasn't in that. That was more like the Alex Higgins 69 clearance against Jimmy White in 1982, the Crucible. It was kind of, he was all over the place, but kept on pulling out the recovery pots. And Judd Trump, uh, the match he played against him, in the quarterfinals, Trump needed a, a, for him a very easy red to lead four nil. That's probably it. Then that's probably end of match curtains. Missed it. Mark Allen turned it round, but in the way he turned it round, he did have a, just a few nudges, a few flicks, a little bit of running that you need. And I think I actually said on the commentary, there are just signs that maybe his name's on the trophy, and you do sometimes feel that. I think. Um, but the one thing that I think should be said about his performance, his safety play was brilliant. I mean, it's got to be against Higgins. He kept on putting him in trouble, putting him on the bolt cushion, giving him problems, giving him things to think about. And we often, I think, we sort of single out with players what their strengths are. And as I've said with Alan, it's close cue ball control. We talk about Neil Robertson's long potting, Trump's sort of audacious shot making and so on and so on. But actually, to be a top player, you need to have a really solid all-round game. And he does. He's a fantastic safety player, Mark Allen. He sort of learnt the game in a very traditional area for snooker in Northern Ireland. He's learnt that side of it from quite a young age, actually. Um, and he, he brought that to, to bear. From John Higgins' perspective, it reminded me a little bit of the Masters final with Yan Bingtao, in as much as Higgins could certainly have won, but at the same time, he didn't obviously bottle it in any way. Not at all. There were a couple of shots, could have gone differently, missed, missed a difficult black when he was going for the win. He gets that, he probably does win. Um, he spoke graciously, I thought. It's very hard to find the words um, at the end. Alan McManus went and did a superb job at the, at the arena interviews. And John said the right things. And Alan very wisely didn't milk it. He let, just asked him a couple of questions, left him to you know go back with his family and, and sort of commiserate. Mark Allen has uh, spoken actually in the press about the sort of off-table problems he's got. And even to the extent that he, he doesn't even know if he can, if he can take the prize money. That's, that's all personal, obviously. But what you saw there was, you know, and, and all this thing about ranking the tournaments and the, the dreaded Triple Crown series and all that, this is a career high for him. He's won the Masters and that's a massive event. But in terms of the emotions involved, this was possibly the, the, the biggest night of his life as a snooker player to win on home soil, you know, not far from the streets where he used to play as a kid, where he learnt how to be a snooker player, where he learnt how to be a man. Mark Allen winning in Northern Ireland, one of the great moments in recent years for me on, on, the, on the circuit full stop. I thought it was a terrific night and what a wonderful sort of relaunch for the season as we sort of get going again. And now we're going to have tournaments coming more thick and fast. It was a reminder of, well, as if we needed reminding what a great sport this is. Um, anyway, that's, that's my opening. Uh, more positive than uh, maybe some, some, some other podcasts this year, but I thought it was terrific. And, you know, any complacency that that I may have had or other people may have had about snooker get blown away in, in nights like that. Not just the final, though. The whole week was terrific, I thought. Um, it was just a great event. So many stories and interesting things that happened. And uh, we'll go straight to the emails, which we've got a few this week, which we're going to be uh, addressing. Alpha Bonzi, regular correspondent, he says, after yet another Belfast nail-biter, is the Northern Ireland Open the true cornerstone 
of the Home Nation series. Well, you're right about nail-biters. They've all been close, haven't they? We've now had six finals in this tournament. Obviously, one wasn't in Belfast. It was in Milton Keynes last year. But they've been 9-8, 9 So that speaks for itself. All interesting stories as well. Obviously, King, I've mentioned... Mark Williams winning, um, started his resurgence, denied Yang Bing Tao the chance to be youngest ever ranking event winner, and then Trump beating O'Sullivan three years running. The first one in particular was significant, that started the great run he's on. So yeah, I mean, in as much as I don't want to get into the position of sort of rank, ranking the home nation's events, I think what, what this event does have um, going for it, regardless of those close finals, is the venue actually, the, the Waterfront Hall in the heart of Belfast City. It's a concert venue, lovely acoustics, just a nice venue for the sport certainly I think uh, it suggests that it should be top of that list but listen they're passionate in Wales as well they're passionate in Scotland even though we're not going to Scotland this year England obviously it's moved around a lot which I kind of guess makes sense um, but it's never really found a home I actually thought the first year in Manchester although that was a good venue and I thought maybe if we could have persevered with that you know it's a major city and uh, you know it's obviously Lancashire rather than Yorkshire where we have other events but um, yeah, listen, it was a great tournament and I think the Northern Ireland Open, if you were going to sort of have a poll, would probably, certainly after Sunday, people maybe would say, well, this is, this is the best of them all. But they're all good. They're all good. And I'm sure the English Open in Milton Keynes with a crowd will be good as well. Uh, let's uh, go to Callum Law, who says this. Just wanted to say what a great tournament the Northern Ireland Open was. It threw up countless exciting encounters, which after a dearth of snooker was great to watch. As a John Higgins fan, it was disappointing to see him losing the final, but it's still very enjoyable to be able to watch him as one of the best players in the world competing to win tournaments, and on that form, he'll reach more finals this season. In the final, I thought long potting was the difference in the end, although John was a bit unlucky with his two shots to split the reds at 8-7 and to only have the greening play in the decider. He snatched at a couple of long reds at 8-all, whereas Mark Allen, when Mark Allen got the chance, he took them. Yeah, I mean, that, that sums it up pretty well, and uh, I think that's the thing, like John Higgins fans... Obviously, were disappointed. He was disappointed, but they could appreciate what it meant to Mark Allen and could understand. I think, uh, you know, why you've got to sort of set aside, you know, any sort of rivalries and just say that was just a great achievement. You could see what it meant to him. That's the thing. He, at the end, you know, it was just. Uh, I know I keep saying the same thing almost, but it just just great sort of great human drama is what I'm saying as well as um, as well as uh, you know snooker drama. Uh, we've got a couple of emails about the same thing, which I'll link to the tournament. The first comes from James Howard. He says, I hope you enjoyed commentating on the final as much as I enjoyed watching and listening to yours and Neil's excellent commentary. Thank you, James. Uh, the final and, final and tournament as a whole was massively enjoyable. And wow, I forgot what a difference a crowd makes. On another note, to follow from what you said about how poor the BBC coverage on the website was on the tournament, I went on today to read up about the final, only to find in the headlines there was not a single piece about it. It's only until you've navigated through the website to the snooker section that there are a few words on this. On the sports headline pages, we had everything from cricket to cycling to God knows what else. The way the BBC, sorry, the way snooker is covered by the BBC when it's not one of the dreaded Triple Crown events is frankly ridiculous, and I can see it becoming a real issue. It's almost as if you have two separate seasons, the BBC tournament season and then everything else. It doesn't help when good men in the game like John Virgo come out with that drivel about Trump having a poor season just because he didn't win a BBC event. Anyway, keep up the good work. So pretty trenchant uh, <laughs> from James. And Stephen Forbes has written on a similar vein. He said, To add to the discourse on media coverage of snooker, I was travelling from late morning until around 4 o'clock on Sunday, 
when the Northern Ireland Open was taking place. Now, I should say this was the first Sunday, not, not the day of the final. Um, is that right? Actually, no. Actually, no, I think this was the day of the final. Sorry, because he sent it on, yeah, the 17th. So that was, yeah, so this was the day of the final. As you can see, I put a lot of preparation into into this. I have read this email already, but you know, a lot's happened since then. I'll start it again. I think just out of respect for Stephen. So this is Stephen Forbes from Bonnie Scotland. He said to add to the discourse on media coverage of snooker, I was travelling from late morning until around four o'clock on Sunday, when the Northern Ireland Open was taking place. The car radio was tuned to BBC Five Live, which the BBC describes as the best sporting coverage, debate, and analysis. During the five hours of travelling. There were various updates from the world of sport, including men's and women's football, Bangladesh versus Scotland from Oman in the T20 cricket, Indian Wells Masters tennis and rugby union. I'd hoped whilst driving that I would have at least heard a short preview of the snooker or perhaps the latest score update. Alas, it was not forthcoming. Considering this was a UK final featuring two British players, one of which was playing in front of his home crowd, the other is one of snooker's greatest players of all time. And if I am not mistaken, both players were also hoping to win the title for the first time and went into the final a very close head-to-head record. There was undoubtedly a, narrat- a, a narrative to merit a case for inclusion in the BBC's Sunday round of sport. I find this level of ignorance by the BBC very disappointing, but unfortunately no longer surprising. If we adopt positive thinking, the title of episode 175 of this podcast, which I must say was a fine solo effort by your good self, thank you, uh, do you ever see the level of coverage improving on the BBC in the coming years? So we've had two emails there about the same thing. One actually about the website, one about uh, the radio coverage. Listen, uh, let's be clear about this. Sundays are very busy for sport. There's football. There's all sorts of other sport. And even though it's a 24-hour station, in terms of sort of sports bulletins, they do have a finite amount of time. It's like four or five minutes um, to round everything up. Um, but it's a question of priorities. You know, this was uh, a bona fide, you know, sporting event worth covering, I think, compared to some of the others listed there. Uh, I don't know specifically what the criteria they use is to decide what they're going to report. Sometimes it, it does come down to just the prejudices of the people on the day. There are other people there who love snooker. I mean, if you think of, um, obviously, Jamie Broughton is the, their snooker correspondent. He also works um, at, at base at HQ. And if he's on the desk, then there'll be snooker reported because he's a great supporter of the sport he wants to push it forward and you know does a fantastic job um on on the radio side so but but if someone like that is not on then they they sort of work from i guess their own their own sort of ideas about what people want to listen to we know snooker's popular and that's why it's on tv so much but not everyone likes it is the truth who works in the media it's always been kind of looked down on by a certain type of person sometimes i think for class reasons sometimes for reasons that it's not a physical uh, activity therefore is it really a sport all that sort of stuff um but yeah you would hope that the national sports and news station would at least reference the score i don't know what happened in the evening this was sent in the afternoon when what they reported in the evening i don't know i can tell you this though it was a couple of years ago during the world championship this is slightly different because this is tv uh the bbc breakfast program they have their sports roundup there half of which seems to be the the sports presenter sort of chatting banalities with the presenters but anyway that's well, that's a separate issue um and th- so it was during the world championship first week but you know it, it was it's our biggest event and they didn't mention what happened the day before at the crucible or indeed what was going to happen that day coming up there was various sort of sports football whatever no snooker and i actually tweeted the the guy who presented the, the sports bulletin and i said you know wh- why didn't you mention the snooker and he, his reply i didn't expect him to reply but his reply was he's not strong enough not strong enough for our bulletin. 
I felt like saying, well, it's strong enough for the BBC to show eight hours live <laughs> today and indeed every day for the next two weeks, but it's not strong enough for your four-minute roundup. Are you sure? Surely a sports bulletin, whether it's TV, radio, whatever, should just be as much information as possible about what's happened in the world of sport you know, that day. And to me, that's largely kind of results and what's actually happened on the field of play. Increasingly, sports news is about what people have said, including a lot of phony stuff, that, you know, sort of hyped up, often that started in newspapers and then, you know, finds its way into TV and radio. Um, the actual business of sport are the results. And I don't think there's any excuse, actually, for not not reporting what's happened in, you know, in a major sport that's being televised in the UK and around the world. Just let us know what's happening. So anyway, um, the, the, the point that's made, though, it was made by James, wasn't it, about how there's a sort of two-tier um, way of looking at it, the three BBC events, and this is more website he's talking about, and then the others. I think that's definitely true because I know for a fact when the UK Championship starts on day one, you know, even the pre-TV round, there will be all all singing, all dancing coverage, and the BBC website will do it well. They have some good people who work for it. Um, I guess what what a lot of people will feel is let's have more of that at other times. I have to say, and you know, without sort of stirring the pot too much, there was an appalling article up there right at the start of the tournament. Uh, which had six mistakes in it. I actually counted them. Six mistakes. They had. <laughs> they managed to get the scoreline... It was Mark Selby, Mark Lloyd. They got the scoreline wrong twice in the story. They got the rankings of Selby and Judd Trump the wrong way around, so I count that as two mistakes. Um, they got the name of the player who beat Jordan Brown wrong, um, and they got the scoreline in the Steve Maguire uh, match wrong. Now, we all make mistakes, but six mistakes, that's a lot, isn't it? Um, and... Anyway, World Snooker, I think, uh, contacted them to, to get it changed. But um, maybe that tells you about the priorities uh, when it comes to snooker. I, I definitely think that there's an issue with the sort of bubble of their three tournaments. And listen, they're three historic big tournaments. No one's, no one's arguing with that. But the circuit now is about more than that. Nobody can tell me that what happened on Sunday night with Mark Allen is somehow negated because it's not a triple crown event. Of course it's not. You know, it, it's, that's a, like a huge, huge emotional and sporting moment for him, um, you know, and, and that's just a fact. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think World Snooker Tour should definitely um, in some way get get involved and say, look, we can maybe share uh, coverage, you know, we we do our stuff, we could send you it, whatever, just try and try and build it up a bit more because you know, the BBC website is hugely popular and, of course, we want Snooker to, to play a part in that. Um, yeah, so, anyway, hopefully that... Uh, that answers that. And uh, now, on, on, in terms of coverage, Malcolm Johnston, thank you for your email, Malcolm, uh, talking about the Eurosport coverage. Now, unfortunately, obviously, I commentate for Eurosport, but I do not speak on their behalf. So you make a few points in your email, which I can't really answer because I don't speak on Eurosport's behalf. That wouldn't be right. What I will do, though, is I will forward the email to them. It's mainly positive. It's all 99% positive. And thank you very much for your um, your comments and your, your praise for our coverage. Um, but there's a couple of things in there as well which you wanted, you wanted answering. I can't do that, but I will send it on, and hopefully someone will, uh, someone will answer it for you. Uh, now then, let's get to, get into some uh, some controversy. Neil Caesar, on a subject close to your heart, we know Jeremy O'Neill has been suspended, but why doesn't Eurosport say that? Your criticism of WST being secret seems a little hypocritical. If Eurosport continue the line of withdrawing for personal reasons, 
Love the pod and the Eurosport coverage. Well, thank you, Neil, but actually uh, you've got slightly mixed up here because Jamie O'Neill was not suspended for the Northern Ireland Open, OK? He was suspended for the British Open, but it was reported that he'd withdrawn, but he was actually suspended. That suspension ended before the Northern Ireland Open qualifiers. He'd qualified, but then he chose to pull out for personal reasons. So the reason we didn't say he was suspended was because he wasn't. He, he chose not to play in Belfast himself. He could have played. He wasn't suspended for that. The suspension was up. So that's it, really. That's why we didn't say it, because he, 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 he wasn't suspended. Simple as that. Uh, Neil Jenkins. Surely it's time to hold Ronnie O'Sullivan to account for his continuing trashing of snooker. I realise it must be difficult for Eurosport to do that, seeing he has a close relationship with him, but somebody needs to tell him to belt up. <laughs> if he thinks these tournaments are just practice matches, why bother to turn up? Thank you very much, Neil. Well, listen, uh, this is part 3,172 of, of what Ronnie O'Sullivan says at times. He wasn't uh, very um, positive about the Hope Nation series after he lost, but this is the thing, OK, and this is... Here's the thing, right? When you do theatre, one of the first things you taught is subtext. It's understanding the difference between what people say and what they mean, because they're not always the same thing. And my theory... He's very simple. I think he said what he said because he was really disappointed to lose to Yan Bing Tao. It's actually the opposite of what he's suggesting. He's suggesting that he doesn't care. I think he did care. If you watch that match, you watch his body language, I think he was really upset to lose. And when you lose a match, we've heard from all sorts of players over the years, they just lash out of stuff and say stuff that, you know, in the fullness of time, they maybe wouldn't say. Because when he went in the studio the next night, he was perfectly fine. He was, I thought he was really good in the studio. He, he said lots of interesting things and, you know, was really towards the end was sort of buzzing about John Higgins and it's funny actually he started to get criticised for being over the top <laughs> in praising John Higgins so at one stage he was too negative then he was too positive um, but that's Ronnie he's either up or he's down as I said before that's the sort of character he is it's all extremes it's up to the snooker fans and the wider sort of public to decide whether they take take it seriously or not I personally don't I, I don't think what he says really has any bearing on anything um, it's just what's in his head at the time it can change almost, you know, automatically. Um, it didn't help things, but it didn't damage them either, really. I don't think anybody refused to watch the final because of some sort of comments that had been made earlier in the tournament. And like I say, I think he said it because he was he was gutted to lose. And, you know, as I say, players say all sorts of things um, when they're disappointed to lose. It also made no sense. You know, he keeps saying... Every tournament he plays in, he says he's paid practice. So what's he actually practising for? <laughs> if, every, if every tournament is about practising, what what's the practice for? And he sort of says they they don't measure up to the big tournaments. Well, he didn't play in the Masters a couple of years ago. He, one year he didn't play in the UK Championship. And he hasn't always spoken positively about the World Championship. So like I say, you know, you, you can choose yourself whether you take it all seriously. There's no, actually no need, no need to get too excited about it. This happens in all sports, in truth. Throughout any sporting event, people say stuff. It's all part of the circus that surrounds sport. And in snooker, you know, Ronnie O'Sullivan has contributed in that in that vein and it gets people arguing and discussing but really I don't agree it does any damage I, I don't think I don't think suddenly people had a sort of you know revelation that oh yeah he's absolutely right I'm never going to watch snooker again no uh, by the next day I think people had basically forgotten what he said I understand why people get upset though I do especially people who you know love snooker and are trying to uh, be positive about it so I understand that but it's up to you to decide how seriously you want to take it, and I know how, how seriously I take it, which is not very. Now, let's get some feedback from last week's episode, and this comes from John Doran. 
Thank you, John, from, uh, from Ireland. He says, uh, I've been listening to the Snookerson podcast for the last few months and I really enjoy it. Keep up the good work. Thank you, John. On last week's episode, 175, you mentioned you thought Karen Wilson was the most likely first-time winner of the World Championship. This might, might turn out to be true, but it seems to be that Mark Allen is a more likely contender for that. Now, I must say, John sent this before Mark had won Northern Ireland Open, so he's not sort of being wise after the event. He's, he wrote this very early in the tournament. This came last week. Anyway, he says that this is for two reasons. Number one, Mark Allen is a proven winner of major tournaments, the Masters, Champion of Champions. Karen's successes have been in smaller events. Number two, it seems to me Mark's best game is better than Karen's best game. When Mark Allen plays his best game, then he has a great chance of winning any tournament, no matter who he plays. Mark's problem is consistency, but if, if he can arrive at Sheffield in his best form and sustain it over 17 days, then he can beat any of the top players, even if they're on best form. I feel the same cannot be said of Karen. By the way, I'd be delighted for either Mark or Karen to win. Well, we'll just make another point, but we'll just deal with that first. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think when I said Kyron, it's based on his record there, which is much better than Mark Allen's. Let's be honest, he's been in a final, a couple of semi-finals. I think last five years he's been at least a quarter-finalist. So, you know, his record is better. Mark Allen's been in one semi-final. That was 12 years ago, 2009. No, I'm not dissing Mark Allen uh, when I when I sort of tip Kyron over him, but some players just seem to play better there than others. And I think Kyron, he's sort of, I don't know, his whole kind of game he's better suited maybe uh, I was thinking about Alan though Mark Allen he is in an interesting position actually he's in his mid-30s so he's between on the one stage of the 40-somethings who surely are going to at some point decline but also the younger players who maybe obviously people like Judd Trump not included but maybe are not quite the threat that they once were so actually in the next five years he's got a sort of window there where this is definitely a prime period for him to threaten to win something like the World Championship. But there must be a reason why he hasn't got close yet. And if he can sort of solve what that is, um, I don't know whether it's stamina, whether it's, I don't know, the longer matches just not kind of suiting him for whatever reason, I don't know. But there must be a reason, because <laughs> we know what a great player is. We've just seen it on Sunday. So what is that reason? If he can work that out, absolutely he has a chance to be world champion. Um, but at the moment, I'm sticking actually with, with Kyron. Um, as my sort of number one choice for a new world champion. Anyway, John's next point. He says, on another point, there's sometimes... Dis and I like this. This is one of my favourite questions we've ever had on the podcast, OK? So he says, on another point, there is sometimes discussion of what is the best world championship final ever. I was wondering about what successive years would contend for the best two consecutive world championship finals ever. Now, this is proper niche stuff. This is, this is what uh, this podcast is basically built on, this sort of stuff. So he says, I suggest the two contenders for this are... First seed, 1984 and 1985. So, Jimmy White against Steve Davis and Dennis Taylor against Steve Davis. The first one, 1816. The second one, 1817. And uh, secondly, 2018 and 2019. Mark Williams against John Higgins. Judd Trump against John Higgins. Obviously, the first one was 1816. second one was a sort of masterclass from Trump. John says the first two are up there for the sheer drama. 84 and 85 finals. Both had big comebacks with Steve Davis hanging on in one and losing out in the other. They could hardly be beaten for excitement. The second two are for sheer quality of snooker. The Higgins-Williams final had drama and exceptional quality, and Trump's performance in the 2019 final is just the best snooker we've ever seen. What do you think? Well, I'd be delighted to hear um, anyone else's opinion on this. They're two good choices, definitely, um, uh, You know, for the reasons you've, you've explained. I think you could make, possibly make a case for 2014 and 2015. So 2014 is the Mark Selby comeback against Ronnie O'Sullivan. Now, objectively... I'm not sure the snooker, if you take that match as a whole, was as high in quality as some of the other finals. 
some of the other finals actually that Mark Selby's won. But in terms of the drama, I don't think you can you can argue it was a very very dramatic uh, comeback and story. Mark Selby winning for the first time and and also sort of starting for O'Sullivan a run at the Crucible where things didn't go his way until of course he won it again last year and beat Selby I think importantly on the way. So it was quite a, de- a defining moment for both of them. And then 2015, obviously Bingham beating Murphy. I'm not sure that finally spoken of enough. That was a fantastic standard. Um, it's one of those things where if it had been a player who had more sort of um, uh, more sort of star, well not star quality, because that, that's insulting, but it was better known maybe than Stuart Bingham, that would be talked about more. He played fantastically well. Murphy played well also. It was a very entertaining match. It swung around as well, quite dramatic at the end. So that's a possible another candidate there. Um, and if you want to go back, way back in terms of sort of two interesting stories, I guess 79 and 80, you've got Terry Griffiths winning at his first attempt and then Cliff Thorburn with that dramatic win over Alex Higgins. Anyway, it's a very interesting uh, question. I never sort of thought, I mean, what, you know, why would anyone really think to ask that before? But it's got me thinking for sure. And um, any ideas anyone has, snookerscenepodcast.mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. We had a discussion about uh, left-handers uh, Dave Tyndall began it, and of course Mark Allen um, has kept this record in this tournament. They've all been won now by left-handers. Um, it's four people: it's Mark King, Mark Williams, Judd Trump, and Mark Allen. But the Northern Ireland Open still being dominated by left-handers. But Jake Lloyd says this: he says, "I love the podcast. Thanks for putting it on. I began listening at the start of the lockdown as part of getting back into watching playing the sports. I moved to Oregon six years ago and didn't have time to make the effort to find out how, where." And maybe trickiest when to watch the eight hour what to watch with the eight hour time difference. I managed to get a local pool table manufacturer to build me a full size snooker table, fulfilling a dream I've had since I was a kid, and a promise I'd made to my future self that if I was ever in possession of the space at home and money, that I'd get one. I have to say that impresses me massively, Jake, uh, that uh, you've gone all the way to Oregon and you, you pull that off. Anyway, he says over the last couple of weeks we talk about left handers and where and when they find it tricky. I was wondering if there was any difference in performance between unmarried and married left-handers. See, this is another very niche question. I mean, who who else is asking this other than on this podcast? He says, uh, Jake continues, As a married left-hander who picked up a cue for the first time since I, was, I wasn't married, I quickly noticed my wedding ring was occasionally coming into contact with the cue, although it would be a stretch to say the quality of my play has worsened, given how bad it was before. But maybe a subtle change could make a small enough difference that wouldn't affect a right-hander as the ring would sit under the queue. I also don't know if married left-handers remove rings to play. The phenomenal Judd Trump is unmarried right now, so presumably if that day comes, maybe we'd be able to see more of an immediate difference. I don't have enough time right now to go into and compare unmarried and married left-handed performances, so in lieu of that, I will start moving my ring to my right hand when I play and report if there's any unexpected improvement. Thank you, Jake. Maybe Dave Tyndall could, <laughs> could look into that for us. But here's the thing. So Neil Robertson has just got married. Um... And his first tournament back as a married man was the Northern Ireland Open. Now, he actually did an interview on Eurosport um, in our studio where he talked about this very thing. And he actually said when he went to get the ring, he actually spoke to the sort of ring manufacturer, as it were, uh, to speak about this and to ask about um, if, you know, well, to take it into account, shall we say. Now, I, I, I didn't... I didn't sort of um, write down chapter and verse what Neil said, but if you can find that on YouTube, that's your answer there, basically. Um, it, the results are inconclusive because he, he didn't do too well in the tournament. I think he lost, was it second or third round? Um, 
So we don't really know. Ricky Walden beat him, didn't he? I think it was round three. So we don't really know um, if that's any effect or not. He was wearing the red wedding ring when he played. Um, but he thought about that. Interestingly, Neil thought about that and uh, maybe follow his results this season if you want to sort of see how that's going. But uh, he did say that he, he did speak to the, the guy about possibly it affecting him. So it's an interesting point. It's a point, very uh, specific point you've picked up on there, which I think a lot of people would not have thought of. Um, but anyway, Neil did that interview with with Eurosport. Uh, by the way, I have to say uh, at this point, um, he did the interview with Rachel Casey. What a great job Rachel did um, all week for Eurosport. It was a slightly last minute uh, thing that she was she stepped into the breach to present it, but she did a fantastic job. You know, she's been part of the the team there for a number of years as reporter, and uh, just did a great job. It's not easy that I'm, t- I'm telling you, it's not easy. Um, you obviously you number one, you're in vision all the time, so. For example, if you're commentating and the producer says something in your ear, and you can sort of make a note of it, you can write something down, you can go on your laptop or wherever. You can't do that if you're looking down the barrel of the camera. You've got to just absorb it. You've got to keep the broadcast going. You're dealing with you know, guests and so on. You're dealing with uh, time slots and getting into ad breaks and off-air times. It's not easy. Um, they're at the sharp end, those people, and... We know how good people like Hazel Irvin make it look and, 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 and many others as well. But Rachel did a great job. And uh, yeah, uh, that's it. I just wanted to, 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 to make reference to that. Let's change the subject. Uh, Sachinda here. Just a question for your brilliant podcast. Is there, any, is there such a thing as an impossible snooker? And has a player ever thought, I can't get out of this and given up hope of getting out of one? <laughs> well, Sachinda, I mean, yeah, there, there are. Um, this is the sort of the strange thing about the misrule in some ways. Um, if you get put in a position where it's a really difficult snooker to get out of, maybe not, not not impossible, but difficult, the referee often will use their discretion and not call a miss. Um, but that raises the question, why why try and lay a, a fiendish snooker um, rather than a sort of regular one, if you like, because you get, you'll only get the four points out of it, I guess. Uh, there are scenarios where it's impossible. And in that, in, in that um, scenario... You have to basically just play a stroke, and it will be accepted that you know it was impossible to hit the ball, and the miss won't be called, obviously. Um, but you have to make some sort of shot, uh, essentially. Sort of thing referees um, in bars late at night love to talk about. You know what, what, how, how all that sort of stuff would work. So uh, yeah, it 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 can happen, but um, there is such a thing as an impossible snooker. If you think about it, okay, here's is an example: the cue ball is angled in the jaws of the yellow pocket, and somehow. Uh, you know the green is right in front of it, and you're on the yellow. By the way, so the cue ball is in the jaws of the, of the pocket. The green is wedged right in front of it, and the yellow's on its spot. There's no way of hitting the yellow. There's no legal way of hitting the yellow. So what can you do? You just have to, I guess, I don't know, play it in off or whatever. But you have to, you have to do something. So there are, there is such a thing as an impossible snooker. It doesn't happen very often, but I'm sure it has happened. I'm sure people can, can uh, recall various instances where it has. Now, one of the unexpected um, long runners on this podcast is Neil Folds' doubles competition. We all thought we'd seen the back of it. It was, it was resurrected last week, and Adam Fisher is refusing to let it go. He says this, I had a moment of inspiration last episode when you mentioned again Neil Folds' doubles event. I combined this with the Team Angles v Team Whirlwind game from the Eurosport coverage and ended up with an interesting doubles concept. Whilst, I'll agree, whilst I agree with bringing back a doubles event, I think Neil's version is two squid games for my liking. And this is a reference to uh, a Netflix show that everyone is watching, although I haven't seen a minute of it yet. Uh, 
listen, I'm I'm behind the I'm always behind the curve on these things. I I don't know whether other people agree, but when you're told constantly something's brilliant, you've got to watch it. I always hold out, and I'm usually wrong. I did this with the Sopranos for a long time, um, and then I eventually watched it and realised how good it, how good it was. So I'm sure I will get round to. Anyway, we're not we're not here to talk about Squid Games. Uh, Adam says I think the new doubles event should be more like doubles tennis, where each successful pop by a player is followed by his or her partner taking on the next ball and so on. Uh, I've thought about this a lot over the last week. I think it could be a hit, especially with a lively crowd. Imagine the first one for seven made in this style. The only other rules would be that when the next couple come to take their shot, they get to decide who of them takes it on, and they also get to confer with each other during play. I think this version could be a fun bridge between the shootout and the more serious events. Note that I'm a snooker traditionalist and love all formats of the game, but also understand the winds of change and just feel a different event is certainly missing from the calendar. Well, Adam, you're talking there about Scotch doubles. That's, that's what they call it. Um, they did use that in the World Cup uh, one year, and actually it made it very stop-start. You can just imagine, you know, obviously snooker's so much about getting into a rhythm, getting into, into a flow, but if you're only playing every other shot, it's not always possible to do that. And also, you know, your partner may have a different, just a different manner of break building to you. It could get a bit messy, actually. I mean, the only way to, to know is to try it, I suppose. Um... But I'm not sure. I'm not sure that would be as successful as you may think. But as I say, until we see it, we don't know. Like I say, they did try it in the World Cup, and then they did change. I think I'm right in saying they changed it back to the kind of regular way um, of approaching doubles. But uh, but the big news there, of course, is Neil's Neil has started something here that just refuses to uh, refuses to go away, despite the fact uh, I'm sure many people would hope it would. <laughs> Now, our final email this week is from Dan Hay. He says, Apologies for the long-winded, long-winded email. To be honest, I assume it'll be too long to read on air or else you're just a Bridget. Well, you know what, Dan? I'm going to read the whole thing out. I'm going to read the whole thing out because it is interesting and I think if I start to cut stuff out, it will kind of possibly confuse your arguments. So I'm just going to read the whole thing out. So settle back, plump up a cushion as I read out Dan Hay's email. On a recent episode of the podcast, you discussed the perceived view that players are constantly moaning, generally dismissing the idea, but stating firmly that you thought Stuart Carrington's recent comments about travel costs would fall under that category. Typically, my views are generally in line with your own, though on this occasion I can see both sides. While you make a fair point about positivity, it also seems clear that being a professional snooker player is difficult financially for most players outside, say, the top 40. It could also be said that not every first-round draw is equal. Carrington drew Sullivan, whose B or C game is still too much for most players on tour, Meanwhile, another first-round tie was Gao Yang versus Christopher Clifford. I guess that is the main problem with flat 1-8 to eight draws. My view is that a professional player should be paid for their services. Perhaps the first £250, perhaps, sorry, perhaps the £250 first-round payment for the shootout should be applied to all tournaments, with an increase to 500 for those competing and losing in the first round of World Championship qualification. It's hardly leeching a living from the sport, for it would barely cover the player's expenses, if that. I also like your idea of £100 a frame, to allow something for those who are perhaps a bit unlucky and or play well in defeat, as opposed to those who turn up and get hammered in less than an hour. Of course, that brings us back to the to the not all first round ties are equal debate, and it also brings me on to my main point on the ranking system. As a fan, I'm perfectly fine with the current system, and I don't really care if it changes. However, as a lot of people seem to be against it, I thought I'd propose an alternative. Sorry about that. A pop-up on my screen came up there for, for no apparent reason. <laughs> I got thrown. Anyway, I'll start that sentence again. 
As a fan, I'm perfectly fine with the current system and don't really care if it changes. However, as a lot of people seem to be against it, I thought I'd propose an alternative. That is, one based on frames one, with bonus points relevant to tournament prize fund prestige for those reaching the last 32 and beyond. The frames one system is used in seniors ranking and in many amateur events, so I'm sure it could work on the pro circuit with some minor amendments. Basically, this system gives each player a ranking point per frame one. Tournaments will also be tiered according to winner's prize money, very similar to the idea of the coloured ball ranking system discussed in Snooker Podcast Land a few months ago. Here is a basic and quite arbitrary draft of what it would look like. Now, of course, Dan has appended a graphic here, which you can't see, but essentially there's different tiered events. So he's got six different tiered events depending on the top prize. So, for example, the World Championship, the winner would get 100 points, runner-up 80 points, semi-final is 60 points, and then it tears down. The lowest tier is tier six, where it's 50,000 first prize. The winner gets 30 points, runner-up 25, semis 15, etc., etc. He says, as an example, the recent Northern Ireland Open will fall into tier five. You win. You need to win 36 frames to win the tournament. So Mark Allen will get 76 ranking points. That's 36 frames plus 40 bonus ranking points. So what he's saying is you get 40 points for winning the tournament plus a point for every frame you've won. So Mark Allen... Under this system, we'll get 76 ranking points. Steve Maguire reached the last 16, winning 15 frames. So that's three wins times four frames, plus three in his defeat to Allen. So he would get 21 ranking points. That's 15 frames and six bonus points. Gao Yang would get four points. Hope everyone's following this, by the way, because I, I realise I'm looking at his, the graphic he sent, which is a massive help. But anyway, let's let, we've come this far. <laughs> let's, let's stick with it. He continues, most draws are a flat 1 to 8, so the system would largely work in that regard. For the Worlds, where under the current uh, qualification system, players outside the top 16 need to win 28 frames to qualify, it would be a case that all players failing to qualify will get their total frames won, whereas the top 16 would get those 28 frames added to their tally in full if they progress past the first round. Those losing in the first round will get half of those frames, 14 at present, the full frames won in their first round defeat, and half the bonus points for the last 32. E.g., in the 2021 Worlds, the C.D. Maguire lost his first-round match 10-4 to Jamie Jones. So he gets 23 ranking points. That's half the qualification frames, uh, 14. Half the last 32 bonus for Tier 1, that's 5. And the four frames he won in the match. Tian Peng Fei also lost in the first round. But as a qualifier, he would get 45 ranking points. That's the full... 28 actually won in qualifying, the full 10 bonus points for that stage in that tier, and the seven frames he won at the Crucible in the first round defeat. Anthony McGill reached the quarterfinals and will get 103 ranking points, the full 28 qualification frames added, full bonus of tier 1, 40 for the quarterfinals, and the 35 frames he actually won at the event. The overall pros to this system, I think, are that the events requiring players to win longer matches are better rewarded, along with the more prestigious events in terms of prize money. Those who moan about the shootout being a ranking event, brackets not me, could take solace in the fact that the winner would pick up only 37 ranking points, 7 frames plus 30 tier 6 bonus points. Events like the British Open, where the prize money is high but the number of frames are low, would be accounted for in both criteria. Mark Williams's win would be worth 86 points, the mere 26 frames required to win the event, plus 60 bonus points for winning a tier 3 event. Anyway, I'm sure there are a myriad things wrong with this proposal that I haven't considered in my haste. Like I said, I'm happy to with the current system, but I'm also a saddo who likes to think about these hypothetical scenarios. Sadly, I didn't get time to rework everyone's ranking points from last season under this system to see how it would look. 
and whether one issue might be that it just scales down the top-heavy allocation of points under the current system. I quite enjoy these sort of pointless exercises. Anyway, this is only my half-baked idea. Dan Hay uh, there with his suggestion. Now, I understand that got quite involved at times, and people may be listening thinking, what on earth are you saying? It's just a blizzard of numbers. But I will say this. Okay, Dan, I've looked at your idea. I think it's one of the, probably the best uh, alternative ranking system I've ever seen proposed. I think it makes total sense. And here's why. It actually is linked to the number of frames needed to win a tournament, which actually surely is the main uh, metric in terms of which tournaments are the hardest to win. Surely the ones where you've got to win the most amount of frames should be rewarded the most. Now, in terms of the one sort of side issue is the prize fund is often determined by the level of investment that could be secured. So, for example, in China, those events... When, you know, when we had them, and hopefully we'll have them again, they were all for big money. And one of the reasons was there was sort of competition between the Chinese cities to make them really big. So, for example, something like the International Championship is worth basically double a home nations event. But that's just because out in China, because of this rivalry between the cities, it drove up the sort of price, if you like. It drove up the investment, which is a good thing, obviously. So those tournaments, in some ways, you could say are sort of overvalued. Um, but I like this idea. I think it's a good idea. Um, it's as good, like I say, as, as good an idea as I've seen, if you're going to have an alternate system. I have to say, though, and uh, although I respect the work you put in, they're not going to change the system, um, even though a lot of people in the game, a lot of players don't like it. I mean, we've got this situation where, OK, so Mark Selby became number one again, but then whatever would have happened in Belfast, Judd Trump was always going to um, overtake him. Um, no, sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, Judge Trump's always going to overtake him. So Judge Trump's number one again. But now, whatever happens at the English Open, Mark Selby's going back to number one because Trump's got points coming. It's 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 a it's a quite a sort of strange system where it kind of looks like what's happening at the tournaments doesn't matter. Now they do, but it it matters over a two year system and those big events in China. That's what that's the money that's coming off Trump. Um, that means Selby's going back there. So. Oh, it's kind of weird, really, um, that uh, whatever happens in the tournament, it can't be affected. You know, their performances can't be affected. There's something wrong about that, actually, when you think about it. The idea that whatever would have happened in Belfast, the Trump's going back to number one. Whatever happens in Milton Keynes, Selby's going back to number one. Just seems a bit weird. So the, the long-winded answer is, I like this idea. It rewards winning frames. Um and it rewards sort of uh, the, the longer tournaments, maybe. There is this issue with the prize fund and how the prize fund is set, and that also um, affects the rankings. But, uh, yeah, I, bottom line is, hopefully people did understand what you were saying, Dan, and uh, I, I actually like it. I think it's a good idea. But as I say, the um, the ranking system is not going to change. Uh, it just isn't. They, they're set on it, and... I guess when they're set on something, they're going to uh, they're going to stick to their guns, and and there are there is value in having a prize money ranking list, but there's value also I think in in maybe maybe looking again. Now we would like to have a, hopefully have a guest next week uh, rather than me just talking myself, but to keep the emails coming in, I think it's nice just to find out what uh, devoted snooker fans are thinking. Of course, there is action as well this week at that great cradle of sport, the Chase Centre Canuck, um, where the standards already been good. Just this morning, Jiaxing Tong. Had four centuries in a match, uh, 468 points without reply. You know, there's some seriously impressive snooker being played sort of below the uh, the sort of uh, 
well, below the waterline, if you want to put it that way. Um, and they're qualifying for the German Masters, European Masters qualifying as well. But the next tournament will be the English Open at Milton Keynes with a crowd, which is, I think, a big thing for that event, for that venue. And that will be coming up uh, starting November the 1st. And then after that, until Christmas, it's, uh, well, it's non-stop, which is good. And I can tell you, by the way, podcast exclusive. It's not an exclusive, it's just a fact. Uh, Eurosport, again, will be showing the first round of the UK Championship uh, on proper telly. So that's a pre... Well, it's not pre-TV because it's on TV, but that first round, that last one to eight, um, traditionally not on TV, it will be. Um, or at least table one will be. And, of course, the app as well will be showing it. So, uh, yeah, so that's another week of snooker, in effect, um, to look forward to. Uh, so that is it. Um, thanks for listening. Thank you to our good friends at Sports Social. Uh, keep sending the money. <laughs> I, I, I jest, of course. We're not. If you think we're making fortunes from the adverts, uh, you, you're mistaken, but... Uh, Every little helps. Um, and <laughs> yes, do send your emails, uh, snooker scene podcast at mail.com. That's snooker scene podcast at mail.com. I, I respect the fact a lot of listeners to this podcast really think about the sport and have ideas for the sport, and that's all good. It's all positive. It's people trying to make the game even more successful. But as we saw on Sunday, it's pretty successful anyway. What a great event that was. Again, I spent a lot of time on Monday thinking about what it all meant for Mark, what it all meant for the sport. Really, it's great to come away from a tournament feeling just good about, you know, the sport that you're involved in, the sport you love. It was a terrific uh, occasion. And like I say, you know, that won't, we, we'll see more of that, I'm sure. We'll see more of that as the season goes on, um, as this great sport continues to enthrall people around the world. But that's it from me. Thank you for listening. And for now, indeed for this week, it's goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.